Welcome to Meet the Manufacturers podcast, brought to you by Manufacture CT and sponsored by Cone Resnick. Advisory, assurance, tax, and online at coneresnick.com. On every episode, we take the opportunity to learn more about a local manufacturing business. On this edition of Meet the Manufacturers, I am delighted to be speaking with Molly Kellogg. Molly is the president and CEO of Hubbard Hall, who since 1849 have transferred seamlessly from one generation to the next. And Molly is the sixth generation of this family-run business. Headquartered in Waterbury, Connecticut, and with facilities in South Carolina and Massachusetts, Molly, welcome to Meet the Manufacturers podcast. Thank you, Claire. Happy to be here. Awesome. Now, come on then, Molly. Tell me, what do Hubbard Hall make, produce, or create? We are a chemical company, Claire, and, and that's at risk of having all your podcast listeners turn off the, <laughs> turn off the audio right now. But we are a chemical distributor and a chemical manufacturer, and we sell back into manufacturing. So if you can imagine people who are producing something with metal, our chemistry helps make the metal more decorative, maybe more durable, last longer and perform higher. So it's chemistry for the surface treatment of metal would be the formal answer there. Okay, so describe your customer, I guess, or your end user of the products that you make. What are their goals and and their needs? Would I have come into contact with any of your potential customers? Uh, I imagine you've probably interviewed a lot of our customers. So as we look at the manufacturing based <laughs> in Connecticut, whether it's aerospace based, general metal finishing, a job shop up to an OEM, all of those types of manufacturers are using chemistry in their process. You simply can't make a metal part or practically make anything today without chemistry involved in the process. It's an interesting environment to sell into because the reality is people don't necessarily want to use the products that we sell, but they have to because in order to get an airplane in the air, in order to get a satellite up in space, in order to get a little itty bitty tiny semiconductor in your phone, there's a lot of chemical processes involved in that. And that's that's how we fit into the supply chain. Gotcha. Now, there's been a bit of talk about the microchips with COVID has been a bit of a shortage. Has that had any effect on the business at all? For us, it's been, a, it's been a positive. We sell out of our Massachusetts office, we sell a lot into the semiconductor and high-tech industry. So that business is booming and we're happy to be part of a, a strong supply chain there. And it's an, another interesting part of our business. We're pretty diversified. I mentioned everything from airplanes to auto parts to we can do something as simple as a faucet. So being that diverse, sometimes parts of our business are very strong, like the semiconductor business right now, and sometimes it's slower. For example, we sell some cleaning agents into the laundry business, and imagine, wow. <laughs> never occurred to me, imagine what happened to that during COVID. Yep. Like, you know, nobody was having parties, so there were no tablecloths to wash, hospitals weren't washing sheets, and so therefore that business slowed down. So there's all those parts that are up and down. So you've got your headquarters in Waterbury and you've also got uh, facilities in Massachusetts in South Carolina. What is done at those other facilities or, or all of those facilities? Waterbury is a microcosm of 
the other two facilities. So our traditional business was straight chemical distribution. So we would buy from the big producers that your listeners may know, Dow, DuPont, Occidental Chemical, and we would just resell. So it was a warehousing, logistics, supply chain business. And then the other half of our business is our chemical manufacturing and chemical blending division, which actually started right around the turn of the last century when Waterbury became the brass capital of the world, there was a need for finishing chemicals for the brass industry. So back out into our blending business, expand that out in Massachusetts, we're straight distribution. So we buy and resell without doing anything special. Down in South Carolina, we are straight manufacturing. So doing all that blending. So everybody does something different. And how many employees have you got across all of the sites? 97. Wowzers, three off the big 100. So (laughs) it's a family-run business. It's quite an incredible heritage you have. How long have you been with the company and how did you arrive at this job, the big job, the CEO and president? Well, as you mentioned, Claire, it's a family business. So nepotism was a big factor in uh, getting me where I am today because I'm probably the only CEO of a chemical company that's never taken a chemistry course. So if my board hears this, they may, they may, <laughs> they may depose me. Uh, I'm, I'm a comparative literature major and I'm finally, after 35 years in the business, figuring out the difference between an acid and alkaline. So obviously I've been involved for a long time growing up. I worked in the manufacturing department some summers. I worked in customer service. I've done a little bit of everything in the company, but really got into the business full-time and seriously when I got, after I got my MBA in 1993. And that was the time we bought this business up in Massachusetts, this distribution business. So I came back from, I was living actually in Paris, came back, lived in Boston and started running the the Wilmington, Massachusetts division. And so 30 years later, now I'm sitting in the corner office where I think the wallpaper is probably the same as when my my cousin before me had it when he was CEO <laughs> and my father and even my grandfather maybe all had the same same office. So was it always a plan to to go into the family business or did you ever think of of doing something completely different? Yeah, I, of course I did. When I was going to school, as I said, I was a literature major. I thought about advertising. I actually worked in politics right out of school. Um, and it was sort of anything but the family business. You know, once I got my MBA, nobody would hire me, so except for my dad, so that got me back into it. But, you know, all joking aside, (laughs) coming back into the business and being able to see a business from the ground up, being able to quickly see that I could have an impact on the business in a way that I wouldn't be able to if I were working for somebody else really got me excited about diving into the business, committing to it, and staying with it. So it was, it was ultimately a fabulous choice. <laughs> I love your honesty. You had your MBA, but only your dad would employ you. Fair enough. <laughs> true. It's totally true. I did, I did I had bike trips for a year. No. <laughs> <laughs> so come on then. What does the average day look like for you at work? Oh, dear. I don't know that there's such a thing as an average day. And that's, I think that's one of the great things about working in a small company. And that's one of the great things about being CEO my day today started at six in the morning when I got here and included operation stuff. We're looking at buying a new building in South Carolina. So I paid some lawyers some money, had a great marketing and strategy <laughs> meeting. So. 
<laughs> don't we all? Don't we I all pay the lawyers? <laughs> I know. Don't, don't ever make small talk with lawyers. That's all I know. All I, I try to avoid them at all costs, I'll be honest. Yeah. Um, so tell me more about the equipment or machinery that you use, because hmm. um, obviously we talk a lot about the, the manufacturing of, of products on this podcast. Right. Explain to me how that works, you know, for you right. in your facilities. Yeah, I mean, if I were to draw a simple analogy, it's, well, it's not quite like baking a cake, but if you think about the big stainless steel bowl you've got to mix all your ingredients, we've got that on an industrial scale, multiple tanks, both here and in South Carolina. So it's a process of blending. So we're taking two to 12 different raw materials, blending them. Sometimes there's a small reaction and then from the big vats, they could be liquid, they could be dry. Then we package them. So we're putting in the drums or pails or sometimes totes, putting them in the warehouse and then out the door they go to our customers. So that's a fairly simple manufacturing process and we approach it I'm sure you've talked to many guests who do lean manufacturing, and that's been mm-hmm. pretty pretty um, pivotal in how we look at our business and, and looking even to the future of how we're going to manufacture in the process, always trying to reduce steps and complexity in, in the process. Could you tell us a, a little bit about, I guess, the management and the employee culture and values that you have within the mm-hmm. company? Because, of course, that always comes from the top down, so to speak. So what are your thoughts on your employee culture and values within the business? When I took over as CEO, so I think six years ago, I sort of drove my 90-day first one-year plan, and it was all about the culture and making sure that we had everybody rowing in the right direction, that we could break down some silos because, you know, there's an old saying that, culture eats strategy for lunch. And I think that's absolutely true. So what I did that first year, and we don't talk about values so much, but we talk about behavior. So that is what sort of institutionalizes how we operate as a company. One of the reasons behind that, Claire, is values can be amorphous, right? So they're hard to get your hands around. Behavior is an action. So we have what's called here our behavior pyramid. And the bottom line of that is to be candid. So we start with being honest, being forthright, be curious because we love people who are always trying to improve and to be quick. So let's take those three foundational behaviors and then we build on top of those to be respectful, be dependable. And at the very tippity top of the pyramid is to be better. And so we're never there, right? You get to the top and then you start back over again. But we spent a lot of time working on those behaviors. They're part of our language. And I think if I look at what I'm most proud of is we've been, prior to the pandemic, we were a top place to work in Connecticut for four years in a row. And I think it's all about the culture. Absolutely. That speaks volumes, absolute volumes. So thinking about people who work for you and if people were I guess, interested in forging a career for themselves Mm. in manufacturing. What do you look for when a resume hits your desk or what characteristics or attributes are what you consider vital to be a part of your business? Oh, that's a great question. I think I would go back to the curiosity and it's a really hard thing to measure in a resume or in an interview, you get a little bit more out of it. But I think whether we hire somebody to come drive a forklift, whether we hire someone at a higher level finance position. And because we're a small family company, it's it's kind of an adoption process. 
So we really are looking for that cultural fit almost before the technical fit because we can train outside of that. But we want people who, again, will operate with a high degree of trust and integrity and who have that curiosity, who are gonna ask a question, who are gonna push a little bit more and how do we challenge how we do things so that we can always change and be better and improve. Because I think operating in a static environment where nothing changes is boring. So we look for, we look for a little bit of a spark. We are hopefully coming out of this pandemic, you know, but other than coronavirus, are you yeah. tackling any new opportunities or big challenges at the moment within the business? The biggest initiative that we've got is digital transformation. And we happily started that prior to the pandemic, but looking around, looking externally and then looking internally, how do we become the leader in surface finishing chemistry, the technology leader in surface finishing chemistry? How do we, from a lean perspective, if you go back to lean manufacturing, how do we use digital and technology to reduce the number of steps that we've got? So we started that pre-pandemic and frankly, the pandemic accelerated that. We were able to do things in you know a week that would have taken six months just because we've all had to flex. But then as I look forward, that's still the biggest challenge and opportunity. So we've got, for example, um, you know, do you know what a BHAG is? The big, hairy, audacious goal. No, I like that though. BHAG. Yeah. <laughs> BHAG. So as we put out there, we want to eliminate data entry by 2023. And if you think about our business, we're entering hundreds of orders a day and we're receiving in product and we're shipping it out. But we're thinking, how do we use technology to take out work that's not value added? So we'll try to automate that or digitize that so that we can free up time for people to do value added work, to be thinking about new products, to be thinking about how to manufacture differently, to engage with customers differently. So the, all the digital stuff, that's a non-technological term, is one of our biggest areas of focus. You know, and then there's another one that strategically, it's, it's either going to get us to the next generation or it's going to put us out of business in a couple of years. But I really want to be the chemical company that sells people fewer chemicals. And my board is not, not happy about this one yet. I haven't figured out how we're going to make money at it. But thinking back to the fact that people don't necessarily want to use our chemistry, but need to when they manufacture how do we help them use less or how do we help them design a process that mitigates some part of our environmental impact, whether it's using electricity? You know, if you've talked to a lot of different manufacturers, Claire, you know that electricity is one of their huge costs. Yep. Well, can we develop products that can operate at a lower temperature so we're saving our customers money? It's aspirational, but at the same time, I think it's very reasonable because if our customers are more profitable, they stay in business and then and we can enjoy a long-term relationship with them. And hopefully have lessened the impact on the environment, which is obviously a key concern. On a personal level, what three figures or people, they could be alive or no longer with us, that have had the most impact on your life or your career? Oh, wow. I know. I wasn't ready for that question. Well, you didn't think it was all going to be plain sailing, did you, Molly? Oh, yeah, I don't know. Three, <laughs> I can come up with one, but, well, obviously... I'll take I one. I'll take one. <laughs> A person who's had the most profound impact on me is my father. And I worked with him for 25, 30 years, worked with my grandfather ahead of time. And probably like most people, you learn the lessons of your parents a little bit too late. So he died a year and a half ago. And 
I remember things that he taught me or I learned working side by side with him that at the time I didn't really understand or I didn't really value. And now because I'm in this seat, I'm like, okay, I really understand it. So one example would be we were walking through the parking lot one day 20 years ago and he noticed that our manufacturing manager had a new car and he said, it makes me really proud that somebody who works for our company can can afford to buy a new car. And at the time that didn't resonate, but the day that I became CEO and the day I pulled into that same parking lot, it was this holy shit moment that not only am I responsible for all the people who work here, but I have the potential to make their lives better and to give them rewarding careers and be financially secure. And so that something about their life can be better than it ever was if they hadn't worked for this company. It's huge. In fact, I think there was one of my interviewees who talked about as much as it was an incredible burden on the company, but healthcare, providing healthcare for their employees who who have become like family, some of them having been there for many decades, little things like that. And it's the same, isn't it, with the new car, the health insurance, you know, you really are belonging to to part of a family, Mm -hmm. not just a money-making machine. Right. And I think it's one of the beauties of working for whether it's a privately held business or a family business is you can make choices and you should make choices that are in the best interest of your employee base, all of the team members. I think you've got an obligation to provide health care. I think you've got an obligation to pay, frankly, above minimum wage. And that's I was just thinking about a building we're buying in South Carolina. I could have moved it to North Carolina, but I would have lost the 30 family members really that we have down there. And it's just not worth it for to save a million dollars over 10 years. Let's take the community we've got and lean back into that. So I think it's, again, it's such a privilege to have a small family business where we can make those choices and pay health care and pay education costs and give scholarships to our employees' kids. But again, a lesson I learned from my father is, this imperative to give back. Wow, it's so refreshing. So refreshing to hear that. Digging a little bit deeper then, Molly, when you look back over your entire career, was it everything you were hoping for in terms of achievements or contributions or simply in your own life and family? Uh, was it? Did it deliver for you? I think it's been better than I expected. And I didn't know, I didn't recognize until I became CEO, I didn't recognize how creative a position that is, if the, and then that may be counterintuitive. So that's a heck of a lot of fun. And in terms of being able to run a business, I, I mean, I raised four children and worked full time through everything. I don't know if I would have been able to do that, not in a family business or privately held. So I've been able to do everything that I wanted to do. I don't know that I think that I've achieved anything. <laughs> I think I'm I'm a work in progress. The company is a work in progress and and I hope to leave it better than I found it and and for generation number 7. So I'm not at any point sitting back and thinking, "Hey, I'm done. I've done an awesome job." Someone asked me recently, "What, you know, what decisions have I made recently that I could have done better?" And I think almost all of them, right? I'm always thinking, "Dang, you know, if I'd just done that, or or worked a little harder, or thought of that, maybe I could have done better." So I'm I'm always pushing myself, but I'm fortunate to be really, really happy in this position. And <laughs> you know, my father worked until two days before he died. My grandfather worked till the day he died. So at 55. 
people are going to see me around here for at least another 30 years and <laughs> hopefully I can keep contributing. Goodness me. Uh, yeah. You have great humility about your achievements. And I think any company that manages to get to a sixth generation, there is definitely something intrinsically very good and solid about the core of that business. So no, credit to you. So when you're not working, which doesn't seem to be very often in your family, <laughs> uh, despite the fact you managed to have four kids, by the way, which I'm in awe of, um, when you're not focused on your work, what do you like to do to relax and unwind? TV, sports, you know, hobbies? Well, I'll tell you, so I'm the rare, most CEOs, like the stereotypical CEO takes off early on Fridays to go play golf. That's not me. I'm the CEO who actually gets into the office late on Fridays because I'm playing in my uh, weekly ice hockey game. And that's my big wow. passion outside of uh, family and work. I, I played in a three-day benefit tournament for MS this weekend. So I play hockey, if I can, twice a week. And uh, it's cheaper than therapy and a heck of a lot more fun and just <laughs> really passionate about it. I've, I've got to say, uh, ice hockey is something that has made it over to the po- over the pond. Um, I it wouldn't has, say yes. it's particularly embedded in British culture, but I did have the privilege of going to a few matches, uh, if that's what they're called. Are they called a match? No, it's a game. Game, sorry. Um, sorry. And, and the overriding thing that I noticed was the n- amount of fighting. So I can under <laughs> maybe maybe a little tension releasing. <laughs> exactly. And and even a couple of years ago when things were, my office would sometimes tell me to go play hockey if I was getting too testy in the office. They'd be like, just go, go skate around, cross check somebody, come back when you're feeling better and <laughs> life will be good again. But, uh, uh, good therapy. I, I wonder if there's a copay for that. Um, if yeah, you, it's not. <laughs> if you could have dinner with any figure in history, who would it be, and what questions might you ask that person? Could be anybody. Yeah, I don't. I haven't thought of the questions. If I could have dinner with anybody in history, I would have dinner with Nelson Mandela. And not knowing the questions, but I'd love to understand his courage and his bravery and his grace to get through what he did. <laughs> to suffer for a cause and then come out and lead it in a meaningful way. So that that's beyond my understanding. And if I could get a glimmer of his humanity or grace, then I'd be a better person for it. Yeah, incredible dignity. What would you say has been your greatest success, both professionally and personally, and why? It's probably a pretty short rear view window mirror, but getting our company safely through the pandemic, where knock on wood, make that knocking sound, we got through with nobody getting sick on site, nobody in our Hubbard Hall community died. So that was, you know, it was a pretty single thought a year and a half ago going into this, that no one's gonna lose their job because of the pandemic. Nobody is gonna get sick at Hubbard Hall and we're gonna support everybody right through it. So that to me was, I'll reach over and pat myself on the back for that one. And I would hope that Personally, what's my most successful if my kids turn out to be well-adjusted people who give back to their communities, then that would be a success. And I'll just add, since you didn't ask my biggest disappointment, I keep waiting by the phone for the Olympic women's Olympic ice hockey team to call me up and (laughs) they haven't rung yet. So I don't know, Claire, I've I've got another bucket out there. There's another thing I want to check off and... We'll, we'll reach out to the Olympic Committee. We'll maybe send them a copy of the please podcast so they can send a scout, a talent scout, please. Come yeah, and find me. We're the one who's blind, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh man, can you imagine that representing yeah. your country? I, I often thought about that. I'm not built for sport, I'll be honest. I'm built mm -hmm. for comfort, not speed. However, I always was, um, I was a very keen archer. Really? I was really good at yeah. archery. I, yeah, bizarrely, I don't know how, but I, I just had mm -hmm. an eye for it. And I was always like, maybe, just maybe, I could go to the Olympics and take part in archery. But um, we'll see, I'll there's see still there. time. I don't know, I don't know if they're that... winter and summer sports, yeah. but we can meet in... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> we can be yeah. room buddies. Oh, goodness me. So tell me a little bit then about your plans, other than obviously becoming an Olympic ice hockey player. What does it look like for you personally and professionally in the next few years? I don't want to do the classic five, 10 year thing, mm. you know, but what is your hopes and aspirations for this section of your career, if you like, and also your personal life? Sure. So for the next couple of years, if I look at a three year window for the company, I want to make a couple acquisitions. We've been growing organically, slowly as one does when one grows organically. So I think an acquisition is the next step. So I've got a couple of ideas in mind and working hard on that. We are also, it's another BHAG, Claire. It's, we want to be the leader in aluminum cleaning. And that's going to take just, that's a real change for us to say, we want to be the best at something. So we're going to be looking at hiring for that. We're going to be looking at product development around that. So those two things can give us some legs for the long term to get us three. The, if I hit those two things the next three years, then I think we've got more runway for the future. I really hope that we can we can catch up and, and do like a follow up to this podcast in a couple of years time and see where you are and see what's changed and, and look yes. back and reminisce as to where things are now coming out of this pandemic and where things are going to be in two or three years time. It's been an absolute privilege to uh, speak to you today, Molly. Thank you so much for your time. If well, people, thank you, Claire. Oh, it's a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, the company and reach out to you, how can they do that? Do you have social media, website, LinkedIn? Sure. Yes. Follow us on LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter. Just look at Hubbard Hall, our website, www.hubbardhall.com. And learn all about us and would love to have people engage with us. Fantastic. And of course, you're on LinkedIn as well. We can find you there, I believe, is, is Molly Kay. Uh, and it's obviously Hubbard Hall. Yes. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today and being a part of Meet the Manufacturers podcast. It really has been a privilege. And let's definitely pencil in a catch up in a year or so's time. You're on. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this edition of Meet the Manufacturers, brought to you by Manufacture CT. If you would like to find out more about Manufacture CT or you would like to join the organisation, you can visit the website manufactureCT.com. Org. This podcast is sponsored by Cone Resnick, one of the largest accounting, tax and business advisory companies in the United States. Visit their website for more details, coneresnick.com. Cone Resnick. Advisory. Assurance. Tax.